Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name's Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. Some of you may know me from the weekly trivia nights that I host. For those of you who do not, I have been hosting Trivia Night for the past two years, and I've decided to start this show to give anyone wanting some extra trivia content an outlet to listen to, even after quarantine, when we're all able to be together again at our local pub trivia contests. My goal is that even when the world is back to normal, Think Cap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your trivia knowledge and to help you learn a little bit more on your daily drive or commute. So for those of you tuning in for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or the data or even just fun facts behind that answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'll give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully satisfy all of your curious minds out there while also entertaining you with my banter. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding that question. I consider myself a general trivia show, so you might get some sports, you might get some movies, you might get some history, you might get a movie about a historical moment in sports. You, you never know what you're going to get. And if you're able to, um, following, subscribing, and rating the podcast on whatever streaming platform you are listening to helps us tremendously. So please do that if you are able. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap, and let's get this show started. Like I mentioned before, I've got a couple different questions for you today. And what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one so like i said the show is general trivia you'll be getting a variety of different topics so sit back relax and let me read these questions for you question number one what country is the largest producer of cheese once again what country is the largest producer of cheese question number two Similar in size to a Great Bernard, what is the world's largest rodent? One more time. Similar in size to a Great Bernard, what is the world's largest rodent? Question number three. What protein in your blood gives it its red color? Once again, what protein in your blood gives it its red color? Question number four, what was the first commercial music CD ever burned in America? One more time, what was the first commercial music CD ever burned in America? Question number five, first discovered in 1799 in a town on the Nile Delta, in what country can the Rosetta Stone now be found? 
once again, first discovered in 1799 in a town on the Nile Delta. In what country can the Rosetta Stone now be found? Question number six, what type of number has no factors other than one and itself? Once again, what type of number has no factors other than one and itself? Question number seven, who holds baseball's record for the most stolen bases in a single season? Once again, who holds baseball's record for the most stolen bases in a single season? Question number eight, how many presidential Air Force One airplanes are there? Once again, how many presidential Air Force One airplanes are there? Question number nine, what was the original meaning of the word bride? One more time, what was the original meaning of the word bride? And finally, question 10, what Metallica song is thematically similar to the anti-war novel and 1971 film, Johnny Got His Gun? Once again, what Metallica song is thematically similar to the anti-war novel and 1971 film, Johnny Got His Gun? Alright, so those are all 10 of our questions for this podcast. And now that you've had a few moments to think over your answers, I'm going to get started with reading question number one again and breaking it down. Alright, question number one was, what country is the largest producer of cheese? And your correct answer is the United States of America. The USA is the right answer. Based on a 2014 study, the U.S. produces about 25% of the world's cheese. The U.S. is followed by Germany and France, and together the three countries produce just about half of all the world's cheese. Now, if we're talking about strictly exports, then Germany would be the king. In 2019, Germany exported 4.6 billion dollars worth of the popular dairy item. And you know, it's thought that cheese was first discovered around 8000 BC, around the time when sheep were first domesticated. Rennet, which is the enzyme used to make cheese, is naturally present in the stomachs of animals like sheep. Their leak-proof stomachs were often used by early humans to store and transport milk and other liquids. And without refrigeration, the warm summer heat in combination with residual rennet in the stomach linings of the animals used as canteens would naturally curdle the milk when, which produced the earliest forms of cheese. And I feel like I can say this about a lot of different types of foods, but man, early humans who were discovering foods and developing these crude processes that have since been refined to make foods that we take for granted, really, they took some nasty leaps of faith in what they were willing to create for survival, and thank goodness they were able to accidentally stumble upon the process to make America's favorite dairy product, that's for sure. Question number two was, similar in size to a Great Bernard, what is the world's largest rodent? And your correct answer is the capybara. Capybara is the right answer. 
You know, when I was little, capybaras were my favorite animal. I remember seeing one at a zoo and being fascinated by this animal that it looked like a guinea pig, but it was the size of a large dog. Capybaras, they can grow up to about four and a half feet in length and two feet in height and can weigh around 100 pounds. They're local to areas of South America that are around savannas, dense forests, and bodies of water. They can essentially be found in every South American country outside of Chile. They're actually considered to be semi-aquatic mammals and are fantastic swimmers that can hold their breath easily for five to 10 minutes at a time. And they actually have the ability to sleep underwater, which is pretty fascinating. They're extremely vocal animals and they're capable of producing a variety of different noises from clicks to barks to purrs. And the harmonic differences between the sounds a capybara makes hold significant meaning in their social groups. This means that the animal is effectively capable of communicating with its peers fairly well. And finally, this one's pretty entertaining. They are sometimes known as nature's ottoman because other animals have a tendency of hopping on the rodent's back and hanging out for a while. Birds, monkeys, butterflies, you name it, they've all been seen riding on the world's largest rodent. Trust me, just Google animals riding capybara and get ready for a fun trip down that cute and hilarious rabbit hole. All right, and question number three was, what protein in your blood gives it its red color? And your correct answer is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is an oxygen transporting protein found in almost all invertebrates. The name hemoglobin was originally hematinoglobulin, with the hematin meaning blood in Greek and globulin meaning ball or sphere in Latin. It is rejuvenated in the lungs and is responsible for taking oxygen to the rest of your body. And for a little historical perspective on how we know what we do about hemoglobin, um, in 1825, J.F. Engelhard calculated the molecular mass of hemoglobin to n times 16,000, where n equals the number of atoms per hemoglobin, now known to be four, from the, from the known atomic mass of iron. He also showed that the iron to protein ratio is the same in several different species hemoglobin. As I said before, almost all invertebrates use uh, hemoglobin. And then in 1840, F.L. Hunfeld discovered that hemoglobin is the chief oxygen transporting mechanism in our bodies. Fast forward about 100 years, and in 1937, Max Perutz began the ambitious project of using X-ray diffraction to uncover the biological function of hemoglobin. He was able to attain photographs using this method that were almost perfect. They showed regular arrays of sharp spots indicating a regular repeating pattern of crystals. The problem was he and his colleagues were unable to translate the patterns on the x-ray photographs into a 3D arrangement of the atoms in the crystal because of a rather complicated mathematical issue. Fast forward again to 1959 and Perutz was able to create a detailed structure of myoglobin, which is a protein very similar in structure and functionality to hemoglobin, but it is found primarily in muscle tissues rather than freely in the blood. And finally, the 1962 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was jointly awarded to Max Perutz and his colleague, 
John Kendrew for their studies of the structures of globular proteins and their development of our understanding of hemoglobin. And question number four was, what was the first commercial music CD ever burned in America? And your correct answer is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Yes, The Boss was the first music CD ever burned. This first CD pressing plant that opened in the United States was CBS and Sony's Digital Audio Disc Corporation, or DADC, located in Indiana. To com commemorate the opening of the DADC plant in September 1984, CBS and Sony pressed two promotional titles in very limited quantities, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, and a collection of early Thomas Edison recordings entitled The Edison CD Sampler. Springsteen's album had already been doing impressive numbers in the United States, but most of the CDs were, ironically, printed in Japan. The album was released in June of that year and had quickly skyrocketed to the top of the musical charts, bearing instant classics such as Born in the USA, the song, and Dancing in the Dark. To note the difference between the historic record printed in the US on that day and the Japanese discs that had already been printed, the text on the CD was printed in red ink instead of normal black ink. So, if you somehow stumble across an old Springsteen CD that is printed in red, take very good care of it because there is a chance that it is extremely rare and extremely valuable. While Springsteen's album was the first printed, the second disc, the Edison CD sampler, contained snippets of early voice recordings from Edison himself. It featured a popular photo of Edison with his phonograph, except it was modified to instead show Edison holding a CD in his right hand. The humorous artwork of the piece gives a nod to Edison's own breakthroughs in sound recording and reproduction and gave a nice historical parallel to the compact disc technology's predecessors that paved the way for modern recording technology. And question number five was, first discovered in 1799 in a town on the Nile Delta, in what country can the Rosetta Stone now be found? Your correct answer is Great Britain. Yes, the English have the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone uh, was the key that allowed modern historians to decipher the meaning of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. For those of you who don't know about the Rosetta Stone or only know it as language learning software, the stone was a revolutionary discovery because it had a single passage inscribed on it, but that passage was written in three different languages, ancient Greek, Egyptian, Demotic, or their common language, and in hieroglyphics. Scholars were able to translate the ancient Greek writing on the tablet, and using that inscription as a codex, were able to decipher the meanings of the hieroglyphics written elsewhere on the stone. As I said before, this became the key to being able to read and decipher other hieroglyphics from ancient Egyptians that, up until that time, had relatively unknown meaning. And the story behind the first discovery of the stone is rather vague, but it's generally accepted that soldiers of Napoleon's army found it on July 15th of 1799 while they were digging the foundations of a fort. The French held the stone until 1801 when it became property of the British as a consequence of the Treaty of Alexandria. 
Between 1818 and 1824, English physicist Thomas Young and French scholar Jean-Francois Champollion were able to make great strides in their interpretations of the stone. While Young was the first to gather an idea that the hieroglyphics acted as a sort of alphabet for the ancient Egyptians, Champollion is credited with constructing a concise alphabetical translation that was used to translate other Egyptian texts in their entirety. The passage on the Rosetta Stone itself is a decree made by a council of priests affirming the royal cult of Ptolemy V on the first anniversary of his coronation, which was in the year 196 BC, meaning that the Rosetta Stone was created in 196 BC. Now, like I said, is the answer to the question, that was a little bit of brief history behind it, but today, the stone is still housed in the British Museum in London, where you can see it displayed proudly amongst other Egyptian sculptures and artifacts. And that brings us to question number six. Question number six was, what type of number has no factors other than one and itself? And your correct answer is a prime number. Prime is the right answer. And there's not really much detail I can give on math questions like this, so here are just a few fun facts regarding prime numbers. There is evidence that the ancient Egyptians were studying prime numbers found on the Rhind Mathematical Papyrus, which dates to 1550 BC. 0 and 1 are not considered prime numbers, while 2 is the only even prime number. There's actually an organization dedicated to finding the largest prime number possible. And the largest prime number found so far has 24,862,048 digits. That's a long number. In his 1985 book, Contact, Carl Sagan tells the story of extraterrestrials trying to communicate with humans by using prime numbers as signals. The main character is a girl named Ellie Arroway who becomes the head of a project named Project Argus, which picks up signals from their radio telescope in New Mexico. From reading the synopsis, it sounds like a fascinating read for anyone who would be interested in a fiction novel that is extremely heavy on the theoretical science side of things, but yeah, the, the gist of that one was that the, the aliens are communicating to humans through prime numbers. And question number seven. Question number seven was, who holds baseball's record for the most stolen bases in a single season? And your correct answer is Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson is the right answer. He played in the MLB from 1979 to 2003. And although he played for many different teams over his long Hall of Fame career, he was most known for his stints with the Oakland A's organization. It was with the A's that he stole a record of 130 bases in the 1982 season. Over the course of his career, Henderson stole a whopping 1,406 bases, shattering Lou Brock's previous record of 938. He also holds the record for most runs scored, most games let off with a home run, and most unintentional walks, among others. To this day, he is the only player in AL history to steal 100 bases in a season, and he's done it three times. In terms of his penchant for stealing bases, a baseball scout by the name of Charlie Metro once said of Henderson, quote, I did a lot of study and I found that it's impossible to throw Ricky Henderson out. 
I started using stopwatches and everything. I found it was impossible to throw some other guys out also. They can go from first to second in 2.9 seconds, and no pitcher-catcher combination in baseball could throw from here to there to tag second in 2.9 seconds. It was always 3, 3, 1, 3.2. So actually, the runner that can make the continuous regular move like Ricky's can't be thrown out, and he's proven it. Now, Ricky Henderson was a flashy and strong personality and, as a result, was sometimes seen as selfish or disrespectful by media or fans. However, he was known around clubhouses as being a good teammate and was an idol for many young African-American players such as Jimmy Rollins. There are many fun stories about Henderson that have been reported over the years, with some being true and others being mostly legend. One story revolved around the fact that he was known for referring to himself in the third person. The story reports that someone saw him standing naked in front of a mirror before a game, practicing his swing, psyching himself up for the matchup and declaring, Ricky's the best. Ricky's the best. Ricky's the best. Over and over and over again to himself in the mirror. Although the percentage of successful steals has gone up in recent years in the MLB, the amount of stolen bases has been declining, pointing towards a trend of base runners being more selective about their steal attempts. With this being the case, it is entirely possible that we will never see the likes of Ricky Henderson again, and that his stolen base record will remain untouched for the rest of time. Question number eight was, how many presidential Air Force One airplanes are there? And your correct answer is two. There are two Air Force One airplanes, and Air Force One is actually the air traffic control call sign for any aircraft that is carrying the President of the United States. In common use, though, the term usually refers to the military aircrafts that were specifically designed to be used by the President. The idea of designing a military aircraft specifically to transport the president arose in 1943. The United States Army Air Forces, the predecessor to our current Air Force, justifiably had growing concern about the use of commercial airlines for presidential travel. The first plane to fit this description was a reconfigured C-87 Liberator Express, while the first ever plane designed specifically for the president was a modified Boeing 707 used by John F. Kennedy in 1962. Today, the president flies in one of two highly customized Boeing 747-200B series aircrafts. The Air Force gives them the designation VC-25A. Via the White House's website, the plane can refuel in mid-air, which gives it unlimited range, is protected against electromagnetic pulses, or EMPs, which would mess with the communication devices on board. And speaking of communication devices, it has secure devices which would allow the president to use it as a mobile command center in case of attack. It has three levels, an executive suite for the president, as well as a medical suite with a doctor permanently on board in case of medical emergency. The airplane is instantly recognizable by anyone in its vicinity, it's painted with the presidential seal, a U.S. flag, and the words United States of America adorned boldly on its side. And just imagine if these are the features that the plane that the government tells us about, you can only imagine all the bells and whistles that they keep close to their chests. 
And that brings us to question number nine. The question was, what was the original meaning of the word bride? And your correct answer is to cook. To cook is the right answer. Uh, I just have a, a quick one here. Not going to go too deep into it because, um, you know, etymology is a lot of hearsay. Uh, no one knows exactly where a lot of words came from. So it's uh, there's a lot of background information that's not necessarily the most clear. But there are various theories about the origins of the word bride and groom, actually. Uh, the origin of the term groom is... It's supposed to have the same root as the verb groom, groom meaning to take care of or to train something to be better. For example, a boss always grooms his successor. The two words come from the old English word guma, which refers to a young servant boy who takes care of horses. Likewise, the word bride, like I said, is said to have been originated from the old English word brew, which means to cook. Now, it seems clear that uh, whoever determined these words back in the day had very clear gender roles for what the uh, husband and wife's responsibilities were. And while those responsibilities have blended a little bit, it is kind of funny just to look back at the historical meanings of uh, some of those words. And finally, question number 10. The last question of the podcast was, what Metallica song is thematically similar to the anti-war novel and 1971 film, Johnny Got His Gun? And your correct answer, that song is one. One is the right answer. And while some of our younger listeners might recognize the song from its appearance on Guitar Hero 3, some of our older folks simply know it for being Metallica's burst onto the national spotlight. Released in 1988 as the third single from Metallica's fourth studio album, And Justice For All, One was one of the band's most successful songs and arguably is the pinnacle of the metal genre's artistry. It won the 1990 Grammy for Best Metal Performance. The song came to be when Metallica's vocalist James Hetfield had a vision for a song based on the idea of being just a brain and nothing else. And upon hearing this, the band's late bassist, Cliff Burton, suggested that James read Dalton Trumbo's 1939 war novel, Johnny Got His Gun. The novel follows an all-American boy named Joe Bonham. Joe was encouraged by his father to join the war efforts in World War I, but during battle, the young infantryman steps on a German landmine and gruesomely loses his arms, legs, and all five of his senses, leaving him trapped alone in his mind, kept alive only by the doctors that surrounded him on his hospital bed. In the end, after coming to terms with what had happened, Bonham communicates his wishes to the doctors in the only way he is capable, by tapping his head against the pillow in Morse code to say, please kill me. Now. The song One is an almost eight-minute musical journey that starts with a beautiful melodic guitar and slowly transitions to its famous heart-pounding thrash metal climax. The song also follows an unnamed protagonist that loses his senses and slowly descends into a living hell, with the backing music mirroring the tone of the lyrics perfectly. The song fits the Johnny Got His Guns narrative so closely and was obviously influenced by James's appreciation of having read the book. 
In fact, Metallica reached out to those with the rights to the movie and were given permission to use sounds and scenes from the movie in their music video for the song. The music video is powerful and was very successful to the masses. It certainly helped both the song and the band cement their place at the forefront of their genre to the national audience. And to me, the song will always be one of my personal favorites, representing everything that the band has to offer, much like Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven or Ozzy Osbourne's Crazy Train do for their respective artists. And now that brings us to the end of this week's show. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. If you didn't, just act like it never happened. I'll be releasing podcasts every week from here on out, so in order to stay tuned with what I am releasing, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram, or follow on Facebook with the same name, and I'm still working on getting the videos up on YouTube. There's going to be links to each streaming platform where you can find the streams. In addition, there's going to be some fun content posted every couple of days to keep you thinking. Again, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if you can. Any feedback from you guys helps us out tremendously. Um, if you haven't started, uh, every Friday night, myself and the free parking guys host a marble race that has an integrated trivia show in it. It's a live show every Friday at 9.30 p.m. Um, you can win prizes, uh, cash prizes for answering trivia correct or winning marble races. It's free to play. All you need is a Twitch account. It's a lot of fun, so come hang out with us um, every Friday. Um, and finally, in regards to this podcast, I'd love to hear what you guys want to learn. If you have any fun trivia facts or you want questions pertaining to a certain topic, please leave that in your feedback or feel free to comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. So that said, uh, I'm signing off for this week. Thank you and take care.